Welcome back to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Cressy, and this is episode 136. I am super excited for this episode because, honestly, this is a guy who's had a profound impact on my career, whether he recognized it or not. Just one of the super knowledgeable guys in the game, um, has served at really every level over a lengthy coaching career. He has experience in high school, college, uh, private sector, pro ball, you name it. Um, wonderful guest presenter, both nationally and internationally. A guy who's delved in really, really deep on the catching side of the game, but also has a ton of managerial experience. Um, and what I really respect about him most is he's always getting better. Um, we're interviewing him today, and he's 78 years old and still looking for new ways that he can help players. So I think. Uh, that devotion to player development, as you'll hear in his bio in a second, is one of the reasons why he's been celebrated for such a long time, um, but also just an amazing model uh, for the up-and-coming coaches that listen to this. So hopefully you all take something from it, and there's certainly something for the players and parents as well. So enjoy. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens, the most comprehensive NSF certified for sport daily nutritional supplement I've ever tried. With so many stressors in life, it's difficult to maintain effective nutritional habits and give our bodies the nutrients they need to thrive. As a father of three young kids and a co-founder of multiple businesses in multiple states, on top of still being an avid exerciser, I know that busy schedules can really take their toll on us. Whether it's poor sleep, exercise or life stressors, environmental factors, or simply not eating enough of the right foods, we can wind up deficient nutritionally. This is where Athletic Greens can really help. It's a game-changing nutritional insurance policy. They simplify the logistics of getting optimal nutrition on a daily basis by giving you just one thing with all the best things. And that's why I use it daily and recommend it to our athletes. One scoop of Athletic Greens contains 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, including a multivitamin, multimineral, probiotic, green superfood blend, and more. They work together to fill the nutritional gaps in your diet, increase energy and focus, aid in digestion, recovery, and supporting of a healthy immune system. This all can happen without taking multiple products. While most nutritional products come to market and stay stagnant, Athletic Greens continues to obsessively improve this one holistic formula based on the latest research, producing 53 improvements over the last decade. They invest in the most absorbable and natural source of each ingredient and go above and beyond in third-party testing to ensure their customers continue to receive the highest quality and best daily nutritional habit on the planet. It's lifestyle friendly, whether you're keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free, and contains less than one gram of sugar without compromising on taste. They put 75 ingredients to the NSF for Sport certification to come up with a formula that's trusted by some of the world's best athletes, including our own. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving our listeners 10 free travel packets with their subscription. Simply go to athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy to receive my offer. These travel packs are perfect for supporting your immune system, energy, and gut health when you're traveling for games, training, or simply when you're on the go. They can be a great counterbalance to less than ideal on the road food options. So if you want to bridge the gap between deficient and optimal and give yourself the best chance to get nutrient diversity, then head to athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy and get your 10 free travel packets today. Again, that's athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy, C-R-E-S-S-E-Y. After a college baseball playing career at UCLA, today's guest embarked on his coaching career in 1966, where he began with two years as the freshman coach at his alma mater. After a year at Pioneer High School in Whittier, California, three years at Santa Monica High School, and three years at Valley College, he spent the next 23 years as the head coach at Sacramento City College. There he compiled an 831-208 and 208 record with 18 league championships, two state titles, and a national championship in 1998. Sac City was voted the community college program for the decade of the 90s by Collegiate Baseball Newspaper. 
While at Sac City, his team's produced 28 major league players and had 213 players drafted. He also served as an assistant at the University of Miami in 1984 when they finished fourth in Omaha. He then spent five years as an assistant at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. He's been active in international baseball, including three stints with the U.S. Olympic team. He also managed Team Israel to a 3-0 record at the 2017 World Baseball Classic Qualifier and a 4-2 record in the main tournament. In professional baseball, he's been the Brewers catching corner and managed for the Expos, Cubs, and for the Rockies in the California League. He was also catching corner for the Dodgers and later director of player development for them. From 2012 to 2017, he served as the catching coordinator for the Colorado Rockies. He served as the manager for the Wareham Gateman of the Cape Cod Baseball League in both 2016 and 2019. He's a member of the California Community College Baseball Hall of Fame, the Sacramento City College Athletic Hall of Fame, the American Baseball Coaches Association Hall of Fame, and the LaSalle Club Coaches Hall of Fame. In 2018, he received Baseball America's Tony Gwynn Lifetime Achievement Award. In 2020, he was named the recipient of the American Baseball Coaches Association Wilson Lefty Gomez Award for contributions to the game locally, nationally, and internationally. He's written numerous articles, three books, chapters for multiple other books, and has produced various instructional videos. He's also been a guest presenter extensively, both nationally and internationally. Please welcome to the show, Jerry Weinstein. Jerry, this is incredibly overdue. Thank you so much for joining. No, I'm looking forward to it. We've had some awesome conversations over the years, and honestly, a lot of them probably shouldn't re- should have been recorded for the greater benefit. So I'm, yeah. I'm happy that we're finally getting to it. Um, so your your bio is probably the most impressive of anyone who's ever been on this show. And we've had Cy Young Award winners. We've had some some super accomplished people. Um, you know, 66 years of coaching, I think, is what the number was. Um, but let's talk about the path to coaching. You know, you you played yourself at Blues at UCLA. Um, how did you initially make the transition from playing to coaching and, and, and really what drew you to it? Well, I think early on, <laughs> I wasn't a very good athlete. Like, like mm-hmm. a lot of you, I mean, this is a common story you, you hear, especially people who have been in coaching for a long time and got started early, but uh, I was 15 and a half and uh, kind of a broken home situation, needed a job and got a work permit and worked for the recreation department. Part of working was, coaching a team in the park. And then I was obviously playing uh, American Legion baseball, high school baseball, but I always coached a team every year uh, as long as I could, unless I was out uh, playing like I played in, in Alaska and, and I couldn't do anything there, but, but uh, I've always coached teams. And as soon as I finished at UCLA, uh, I coached the freshman team. And uh, I mean, early on, I, I knew my limitations and I knew uh, I was pretty good with people and I was, very analytical. And so uh, my models were coaches rather than players. And I watched how people interacted with people and interface and how they coach. And I asked questions. And uh, early on in my career, I went and watched a lot of people coach. I I paid a a lot of attention to that. I was fortunate in Southern California, there were a lot of good models and a lot of scouts. And I played on scout teams and I, you know, they would talk after games and I would always be there. And when we played USC, at the time that Rod Dato was there, which is probably the most accomplished college coach in the history of baseball, I, I watched him more than <laughs> and I paid attention to the yeah. game. And I was at UCLA when John Wooden was there and was lucky enough to be able to go in and watch basketball practice. And Coach Wooden was a big baseball fan. And and so I, I was very, very fortunate to be in the right place at the right time. 
I love that. You know, when, when you were playing baseball, you know, it's funny, I've had good conversation with guys like, um, like Ryan Flaherty, as an example, like, and um, even connected with some uh, Chris Pollard at Duke just recently. And both of them were saying like on the tail end of their career, they found themselves standing next to the manager a little bit more often and just watching the games, you know, through a different lens. And certainly now they've gone on into, uh, into careers and, in, in, you know, certain managerial roles. Were you a player that always found yourself being, maybe more intrigued about the the nuances of the game beyond just what you would, you would get as just a player. No, no doubt. I was, I, I knew, I, I mean, I, I knew at 14 that I was going to be a teacher and wanted to be a coach. And, and, and I knew that in order to do that, I had to find some role models and, and to find and, and, and get info. I mean, the man with the most information wins information is King. And so uh, I, I, I did a lot of, of reading and research on my own, just based on teaching and coaching methods, not only to help me become a better player, but more pointedly to, to be a better teacher coach. I love that. And I mean, I think the, this whole mindset of like coaches are teachers first and foremost, you know, it's, it's about that side of things. And, you know, so few, so many people get caught up in win-loss records and, you know, overlook the fact that develop is or development is or isn't happening. I, I love that perspective. Um, you spent 23 years at Sac City Community College, uh, 831 and 208 record, which I think is an 800 winning percentage, 18 league championships, two state titles, a national championship in 1998. I mean, that's a, that's a dynasty. So I'm curious when you go back and and actually you know think about it, what do you think the keys were? A to to build it, um, but B also how do you sustain it for that long? Because this isn't just a five or six year run. This is you know two decades. Yeah, that's that's the measure sustainability. I mean, winning once is is hard and it's really good, but but staying there is even harder. And I think that um, for me, it was it, you know you hear this perfect storm analogy, but it was a perfect storm. I went in, I was from Southern California, and baseball in the community college level in Southern California was a lot different than in Northern California. And and the the chess and checkers analogy really applies there. And Northern California was kind of like hey, you roll the the bats and balls out in in uh, February, and then you put them away in in uh, June, and don't tear up any uniforms or break any bats. And, and that was not my vision, and ours was a, a year-round uh, uh, process and, and and template. And and fortunately, Sacramento was an unbelievable baseball town. Baseball was the number one sport. There was a big-time Coast League town. Baseball was number one. There were winter leagues. There were summer leagues. Everything was in place to mm-hmm. Put together a good program, and uh, there were a lot of big league players living there, a lot of minor league players, lots of scouts. Uh, it was it, baseball was important. They just didn't have the right process, and we went about it with a real intense recruiting uh, process and and year round baseball. And at that time, there was a January draft, and that really played in our favor. And also, as good as baseball was in that area, it was not very heavily recruited. Now I started in '74, and certainly. The recruiting process has changed dramatically. There are no there are no hidden players anymore, and we had a lot in in Sacramento and a lot of good players. We built. Uh, I took a year out, a leave of absence, went to the University of Miami, and was the assistant there for Ron Frazier. And uh, my vision for what we could do was really enhanced by seeing what he did down there. And we built a, a, a probably what would be in today's dollars a, an eight or nine million dollar baseball facility with lights and locker rooms and you know, everything you need to have to have a good program. And there was a lot of community support there for us to do that. And we just, 
uh, had some seed money and got a lot of volunteers to do it. And so, and then we had really good coaches uh, and, and we had consistency. Uh, most of my coaches were with me almost the entire duration of the stay I had there. And uh, so uh, we had consistency and, and, and they were like me, they were, uh, they were lifelong learners and they wanted to get better and they took a lot of pride in what they were doing. We had a lot of players. We had players that would come to Sac City when they were offered four-year college scholarships instead mm-hmm. of doing that because they had a chance to go out and sign. Um, most A large percentage of our players came because they wanted to be professional players, but we had an awful lot of scholarship players that fell a little bit short at that time, but later on got to the big leagues as a result of their foundation. Uh, we played – 200 plus games a year with two teams. We didn't cut anybody. We had huge squad sizes. Uh, and it just, you know, it just was the right, the right program at the right time with a, not a lot of resistance relative to recruiting the other coaches in the area just didn't quite get it at the time. Now it's gotten a lot better. It's really, really good. And uh, so we were just a little bit ahead of our time. We could play, the four-year schools, uh, they could play community colleges in the fall, so we would play UCLA and SC and and play Cal and Stanford and, and travel around the state and play and and uh, it was <laughs> it was a great job and and uh, we had great players. We had you know thirty-four plus big league players, so the talent base was tremendous and the internal competition was de- tremendous. So there wasn't a lot of you didn't have to do a lot of disciplining and, and stuff like that because of the internal competition and, and the guys would leapfrog one another and, and get better just because there was so much competition there. I love that. That was my next question is like, what's the, what's the culture that makes that happen? I mean, you hear stories about, you know, after, you know, these college teams win national championships, kids get comfortable. I remember the the story of Tim, Tim Corbin, like giving all the guys, I think it was like the, the plain black and gold uh, t-shirts for practice in the fall. And they had to earn the Vanderbilt star. Like you just see these examples of always having to bring guys back to, to not get comfortable um, after these, these successes. Did that ever happen? Or was it one of those things where, the talent was just so good that, you know, effectively, you know, it was, it was, you know, put up or don't. Yeah, we were, it was competition every day. Our practices were incredibly intense and, and we really put a lot of value in practice. And if you can't do it in practice, I don't care how good you are in the game. We're going to compete in practice for playing time. And it wasn't like hey, you had an O for two and, and you were done. Yeah. It wasn't like that, but we, I mean, our guys, uh, our our fall program was very 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 intense very complex. We every guy, no matter how good or bad he was, would get 300 at bats, and our guys would all our pitchers got a chance to throw at least 70 innings. And so, uh, you know, our philosophy also was we lose in the fall to win in the spring. So we really yeah. challenged ourselves, and we like to, uh, you know. Uh, Ken Revisa was a big part of our program. Yeah. I think that's a big part of our success. Uh, you know, being comfortable, being uncomfortable, and and uh, you don't have to feel good to play good, and, and every day, it was important. And so you had to be ready to practice every day. There we didn't. There were no vacations, no time off, and it was yeah. very competitive. We had a park with three fields, and you always wanted to be on field one instead of field two or field three. And we moved people around based on on how they performed uh, over over time, and and uh, so it was it was pretty easy to coach. It wasn't. It wasn't like you had to massage people. You know, they knew if, uh, that uh, they had to be good every day to, to to get a chance to play. 
I love that. Um, you know, and the thing that I think probably doesn't get discussed enough about this is like these are these are two year programs. And you kept mentioning, you know, the contrast with four year programs is, you know, when you, when you have guys that are only there for two years, does that kind of necessitate like the larger roster, almost like the, the junior varsity program where, you know, it gives you that little bit of a window to continue to develop versus just having guys where it's two years. We got to get, you know, as much out of them as we can in this short amount of time. Well, you know, it was really like a one-year program because all our better guys, and we recruited yeah. guys today. Hey, if you play good and get a chance to get a scholarship and want to go, we want you to go. Yeah. And, you know, we felt like, hey, every guy that either signed or got a, got a scholarship would get two more guys to replace him because that carrot was out there. And so it was kind of like a, a, a one-year deal, even though we had we had a, a number. I had six big league players who redshirted a year at Sac City that went on to, to play in the big leagues and have significant careers. And so, you know, not all the fruit gets ripe at the same time. And, yeah. and, but our guys had incredible number of reps by the time they left our place based on, on our, our, our fall program. And then we had a summer league program where we send guys out to play in the Cape or wherever, and they'd come back. And, and so they had incredible number of reps uh, at, at a high level that prepared them to be, to do what they wanted to do, whether that be play at a division one school, two, three, NAIA, or, or sign a professional contract, which a lot of them did. Absolutely. And you, you hinted at it, but along the way, 213 players drafted over 18 years and 28 of them went to the big league. So I'm, I'm curious, you know, beyond just the fact that it's a lot of, of, of impressive success stories, that, that success rate's high, um, you know, relative to the number of guys who went versus the ones who actually made it. And that's particularly the case, obviously, from a junior college, which is probably kind of your your blend between, you know, like a, a more of a four-year school where they go through junior year or, you know, high school drafts where we know that kids have, you know, probably a lower success rate. What was it about your program that you felt like not only produced, you know, professional players, but guys that that eventually became big leaguers? Massive number of reps plus dealing with the individual differences of the players. I think that was one of the things I really when I when I went to UCLA, I graduated and you had to have a fifth year to get a teaching credential and you take a teaching methods class. You know, they talk about proximity, discipline and stuff like that. But the biggest thing they talked about was dealing with individual differences. And and I think we were really good at dealing with people as individual and finding what would help that individual, whether it was a cue, a drill or, or whatever it happened to be. And so I think that dealing with the individuals and, and then also spending the amount of time. And we spent, if you were our fifth, second baseman, we spend as much time, maybe more time with you as we did with our frontline guys. And I really, I really catered to the backup players because the, the, the leads, the lead singers, they, and they got they get to play and they got all the recognition and the and the backup guys that supported those guys kind of like the majority of minor league players that are supporting the prospects they don't they don't get enough love and and I really I really took care of our backup guys and we treated everybody everybody equally you know some of the guys said, yeah you treat everybody equally you treat everybody bad <laughs> I said well you know we have high expectations for you and 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 if our expectations exceed your expectations, we got a problem here. And I've always felt that way. And with minor league players, or they thought, "Oh, you know, you're too hard on me." I mean, I, I mean, guys like Nolan Arenado, I was incredibly hard on on Nolan, but I and he responded. And guys like Ryan McMahon and guys like that, then they've told me, I "said Hey, you're hard, but you're hard in a good way because yeah. your expectations help me raise my expectations." Challenging but fair, I think, is a key. And you know, we, we talk a lot about coaching. One of the things I've probably the best summation of coaching I ever say is is like it's it's about giving people 
the opportunity to fail without consequences, you know, when it doesn't matter is, is to prepare them so that they don't have to do it when it really matters. Do you think that's just a huge part of like you mentioned, like the fall, like, you know, guys getting 300 plate appearances and just a number of different reps is like if you if you get those nobody cares about what the record is in fall ball, you know, as long as you're competing and you're developing, do you think that's some of the, you know, the underlying kind of messages that were really heavily emphasized to your players across, across time? Oh, without, without question. And, and especially a game like baseball, which, you know, all your involvement in baseball, it, yes. <laughs> there's a lot of failure built into this, but Hey, life's that way too. There, yeah. there's a lot. I mean, yeah. especially if you have kids, you know, that there's, and you'll know you got young ones, but you'll yeah. find out that, uh, that there's a lot of failure there and, and they have to, they still have to move on. You know, you can't check out and quit. <laughs> you still yeah. have to have to wake up and, and, and face the day and do what you need to do. And, and from our failures, we develop our successes and, and you have to, I always used to say you have to lose to win and you have to, you have to get worse to get better. Some sometimes it's not a linear uh, progression in which we all know. And so failure is good. And I have, you know, and I don't, you know, if a guy fails, it doesn't mean he's a bad guy. It just it's an opportunity to to regroup and 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 reset and do what you need to do. And 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 your definition of success and failure also is important. You have to understand it's not, it's not a game of perfection, and and you have to understand that and and deal with it. I love that. Um, so, you know, we spoke to a little bit like the extrinsic factors that, that help these players be successful. You know, obviously the, the competition that you instilled, the accountability that you emphasized and all that. You, you were the extrinsic piece. The program was the extrinsic piece. What about the intrinsic factors? When you look at those 28 guys, you know, from from Sac City or, you know, certainly the guys that you dealt with on the minor league side, you know, during your time with the Rockies, you know, what were the commonalities of the players that made it to the big leagues versus those that didn't, was there something about them that you thought differentiated them? Well, you know, certainly there's an ability factor in there and, and, but you know, it's, that's not, that's not necessarily the most important factor, you know, because uh, that's just how, how big a cup you have there. It doesn't tell you how much of the cup you're filling. And, uh, and, and I think that the guys that, that have a passion for the game that, uh, do not transfer responsibility for their development that are, that are good self-evaluators that uh, uh, are level in terms of, of uh, high, high lows and low highs that they, and they don't ride that emotional curve of, of performance. Uh, I, and they have an edge and um, uh, they, every, every big league player that we've had that I know has a little bit of, you know, what in them. You know, and I won't I, I won't say that word on there, but, uh, you know, they, they've got an edge, you know, and, and sometimes and the kiss death is, oh, he's really a good guy. And I think that some coaches, they're looking for that uh, that and I hate to use the term choir boy, but, you know, sometimes that's a red flag. I like guys that have a little edge and, you know, that are going to do some some edgy things sometimes that you have to have to deal with. But those guys with not a huge edge, but they have a little edge. They, yeah. they tend, tend to be successful. And um, some of it is in the form of arrogance, but they all believed in themselves and they, and they weren't going to, they weren't going to listen to any of the naysayers. Cause there's a lot of naysayers out there, especially in, in professional baseball. He can't do this and he can't do that and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, our, <laughs> our deal was, Hey, let's find, let's catch him doing things right. <laughs> it's yeah. easy to catch him doing things wrong. But yep. let's catch them doing things right. Let's because 
on a, on, on a given day, the most important thing that you have going for you is your self-confidence. No matter how skilled yeah. you are or how unskilled you are, if you believe you can do it, you've got a fighting chance. Yeah. What's the same? I'd rather tame a tiger than motivate a donkey. Yeah. So find it's, a tiger. It's easier right? to say, it's easier to say, whoa, than giddy up. <laughs> I love that. Um, so we, we spoke maybe more general on the managerial side of things. And now I think it's time to get a little more maybe granular. You're best known for your extensive work with catchers. Um, I love it. Most of the stuff you you post on your social media, which is outstanding, by the way, has to do with, you know, catchers, you highlighting in-game examples as kind of case studies for people. I think there's a tremendous amount of information. So I'd encourage everybody to follow your Twitter. But you've seen a big shift in 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 how catching is viewed since your first coaching opportunity in 1966. And by the way, I think I said 66 years. That would have made a, a coach out of you at age 12. So it was actually <laughs> Actually, I, I was yeah. coaching teams at 15. You probably were. So it's actually, what, 63 years. So I was close by accident. Um, but let's talk about what the non-negotiables of, of sec, uh, excuse me, successful catching are. And then maybe we can talk afterwards about what, you know, what has changed dramatically. But for you, what hasn't changed since 1966? What are the non-negotiables of the catchers that, you know, that you, you want behind the plate for the big game? Well, for me, it's it's a defensive first first position, and and that's the one thing that you have to understand because there's so many. If if you're going to really be good, especially at the big league level, at the professional level, the preparation time that you have to spend on your defense, just preparing for each individual pitcher against each individual hitter, it's insurmountable. So you're the time spent, the time that you have to spend offensively is is not as limitless as it is for say uh an infielder or an outfielder because and also physically the position is very demanding legs hands you're beat up you're tired you're you're uh uh depleted uh energy depleted and and electrolyte depleted and, and you name it and and uh and and also uh you have a target on your back uh, yeah. You're touching the ball probably a hundred plus times a game, and when something goes wrong, uh, they're <laughs> the, the, the pitchers sometimes are a little sensitive, and so they know the catchers have a thick skin. So why did you call that pitch, or <laughs> why didn't you block that pitch, or you know? So and I'm not being paranoid, but the, there is somewhat of a target on your back as a catcher. So there are that that defensive piece and being a tough guy and and. And it's it's like a combination of a point guard and a quarterback and a middle linebacker. You're you're in charge. You're in control on a given day. Uh, winning and losing is determined by three people: the pitcher, the catcher, and the umpire. And the catcher impacts two of those guys, and the pitcher's only out there. The starting pitcher's only out there every fifth day. You're out there every day. So the demands physically and intellectually are are tremendous. And there's lots of opportunities to be successful, but there are also lots of opportunities to be unsuccessful as well. And, and, uh, you know, I always told the pitchers, Hey, we win today. I get half a win. You get half a loss (laughs) or half a win. And, and they don't, they're, they're more than happy to share half of the loss with you, but not so much half the win. (laughs) But, uh, you know, it's so funny as you were, as you were describing like all the different responsibilities, I was like, you know what? I just realized I don't think I've ever seen a catcher on anything except for the early bus. They're always on the first bus to the field. Doesn't matter who's catching that day, but it's just there's too much to do. Well, you know, aside from getting treatment and looking at videos and and talking to the pitching coach and talking to the manager and doing your own 
maintenance program for your your skill set and and then trying to get a little time in the cage and guys throwing sides and if you don't catch him you certainly want to be out there and watch him to see what he's working on or what the stuff looks like and to talk with him and to bond with him and and to prove you know it's a, you have to have a servant mentality uh it's it's a it's a pretty demand. Yeah. It's a pretty demanding job, and it's a pretty pretty significant job because if you look at the the runs saved just based on receiving the better guys, they're responsible for three or four wins a year, which is like nine million dollars a win. And I don't think we're getting paid thirty six million dollars a year to catch. It's a good point. There aren't many out there, but they're they're so impactful. And you're right; just the simple fact they're involved on every play is huge. You know, maybe building on that last one that, you know, you talked about the non-negotiables of, you know, servant mentality and defense first. What do you think the most valuable trade a catcher can really offer their team is? Is it, is it an actual, is it anything relating to those metrics or is it purely the leadership, the game calling, that aspect of it? Well, it's it's everything. And it's about his, his impact on the pitcher. What just the way he puts his signals down, the way the preparation is, the way he pitch calls – is that going to make that pitcher more committed, more confident, uh, more trusting in this pitch that he throws? They'll give him the best chance to execute that pitch. And pitch execution is everything. I mean, and it's more it's more about the execution of the pitch than than the stuff uh, for me. And and that's where the catcher comes in. I mean, it's a is a significant um, uh, a marriage between those two guys. They really depend upon one another. Uh, the the catcher depends upon that pitcher to trust him, and the pitcher depends upon that catcher to be prepared and and to to lead him in the right direction. In, in a lot of cases, now if you have your Bob Gibsons or your Max Scherzers and guys like that, uh, they're pretty self sufficient, and uh, the catching is somewhat secondary. Even though uh, guys yeah. like um, like Greg Maddox, he 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 had the guy he wanted to catch him because yeah. he trusted that guy. And so it should just shows you how important that guy becomes in the life of that starting pitcher. And, and again, winning and losing that starting pitcher is key in today's game. Yeah. I think it's different for everybody. I mean, I've heard Scherzer talking about Kurt Suzuki. He's like, I love throwing to Suzuki because it didn't matter what I threw. He was always going to block whatever was in the dirt. He, I always had a hundred percent confidence in him. You can look at all the different metrics and think what you want of guys, but at the end of the day, it's the confidence the pitcher has in him that matters probably the most. Right. Well, yeah, but the metrics bear it out too, yeah. and it's easy in yeah. today's game with with better analytics and better ability to quantify performance. We can see the effect, and it's a it's 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 micro in, in on a daily basis, but it's macro uh, in the course of a season because the amount of runs that you save yeah. uh, really affects that guy's performance and the performance of your team. Do you think that catchers in general? Um, they become a little bit more homogenous if, if the automated strike zone comes in is that, you know, they're just not as evenly differentiated because some guys are such elite framers and other are. I, I think it's going to change, but I think that how you catch the ball is still going to be important. The game's going to change in terms of uh, balls in the dirt and, and it, the, the base running, especially with the new rules coming in with yeah. the two pick max and yeah. the, uh, and the, uh, the uh, pitch clock is going to, greatly impact the uh the the way the game is offensively is going to be orchestrated uh, there's going to be a lot more aggressive base running a lot more stealing uh and so uh 
maybe the 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 receiving piece is going to change, but the blocking throwing is not. And just to stick a, a, a DH back there that picks the ball up after it stops rolling is not going to play. And if you catch the ball poorly, uh, pitchers aren't going to like that. And it's 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 going to be different. And um, my hope is that they go to a challenge system before yeah. they go to an ABS system. And because uh, I think I hate to see skill levels eroded. I'm yeah. death against the the shift change. I mean, come on, you can't throw the ball over the plate that's 17 inches like John Sklin yeah. says. Let's make it 24. You know, <laughs> you can't you can't hit the ball the other way. Oh, we won't let him. We won't let him shift. And yeah. you can't learn to bunt the ball. I, I'm that for me. I don't I don't like that. I, I think we're just. We're watering it down from a skill level, and and uh, I think we're eroding some of those things, skill things that that are separators in our game. I'd say the only thing that will pay off for catchers is not going to have to be that. We probably see it every eight to ten games the catcher having to sprint to cover third base because everybody's in the shift to the right side of the infield, and the third baseman's still behind second base. We've seen it like once every week or so in baseball. So the shift might actually re- remove that awkward moment for catchers. Yeah, and and really, you don't, you know, you, you'll see the pitcher over there, and really, yeah. the only time the catcher gets to third base yeah. is when he exchanges with that third baseman on okay. a base hit bunt or a yep. sacrifice, yep. where uh, the the shortstop can't get there. Right on. Um, so taking it down maybe to the younger levels, if there are middle school, high school, college catchers that are listening to this, what advice do you think you, you could impart to them in terms of how do how do they separate themselves from the rest of the pack at, at that particular position? Well, at, at being an athlete, and I think all too often, you know, we get the Sandlot model of uh, yeah. ham back there behind the plate, and that, that just isn't – it doesn't work. And so we, athleticism is, is important, and you develop athleticism by developing a wide range of athletic uh, skills, and you do that by playing lots of sports and doing lots of things and working on your athleticism, and uh, certainly – uh, you got to want to catch. Uh, and, you know, like we see a lot of guys uh, in scouting because I go out and I see the top uh, catchers in the country and I'm, uh, uh, for our scouts. And then we're always looking for a conversion guy, a middle infield or someone like that. And and uh, <laughs> the first question you ask, well, do you want to catch? And if he doesn't say, yeah, I want to catch, then forget about it because it isn't going to happen because it's just too hard, too demanding. And, and the guys that – don't want to catch they're tied into the bat and they know it's going to erode some of their offensive uh, capabilities usually. And so being an athlete wanting to catch, uh, you know, those are two, two big factors for me, having, having a passion for the game, uh, having a, uh, uh, being a leader lead and leaders are developed and you develop leadership. It's not like, you know, leaders are born. I, I believe leaders are developed and I don't mean, that you got to, I got to have a guy with pom poms and as a cheerleader to be a leader, it's you, know, you lead by example, you lead by accepting responsibility, by being a detailed guy. There are no little things, everything's important. And, uh, and, uh, you know, understanding <laughs> this is a hard game and, and, uh, you know, just because you're good and he's bad doesn't make you better than him. You know, uh, I think having uh, tolerance and patience for mistakes and, and uh, nurturing type personality uh and yet having a, a capability to to put the pedal to the metal and slam the brakes on when you have to with certain people and having a feel for 
people and that yeah. you know I that's that's a lot of stuff but there's a lot of elements that go into this thing but a lot of them are you know brought underneath that that servant leadership point from earlier and something that I, I, it's almost probably hackneyed at this point because it's come up on so many podcasts with the people we've encountered but you know you look at some of the best major league managers you know, out there, what were they? They were, you know, retired catchers and super utility infielders, the Alex Cora's, the the David Ross's, you know, Sosha was a catcher. You just see it so often. Uh, Brad Osmus caught, like, it, it seems like it's a natural transition. A lot of the managers come from roles where there was an, a servant mentality involved. And, and also there's a broad spectrum in, in within those people of personality. Some are more talkative, more outgoing, uh, and others are quiet and, I mean, you know, the quiet guys, when they say something, everybody listens. And, uh, you know, the, the, they, they're, they're even, they're, they're steady eddies. They're that, like I talked about that, uh, that low high and high low They're you know, they don't, they're not super emotional and, and uh, ride the, ride the wave of performance. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, maybe building on the catching side of things, you, you recently sent me an email, Tanner Swanson, a few other buddies were on it and you, you put a lot of thought of late, I'm sure you put it into a long time, but you, you put your thoughts on paper just more recently on, you know, this concept of big picture ideas that really impact whether catchers throw well or poorly. I figured maybe we could talk about some of them. You know, what are the what are the key competencies from from a catching throwing standpoint that you've always had in place? And then it seems like you've had some newer aha moments that, that you know, probably borrowed from shortstops and from pitchers and things like that. Um as we've gotten more access to technology and, and video and all that, you know, what, what are the newer aha moments, you know, support the the long-term competencies that have always been there? Well, the reason I sent that out is because I'm doing a presentation at CatcherCon this year on throwing. Yeah. And I want to do not the, the usual, I want trying to do a real deep dive. And what I've, what I've done is I've taken the top three, I've got good video on the top three uh, pop time throwers the top three velocity guys and the top three release guys. And I've got some real good slow motion stuff. And, but I'm trying to, uh, you know, uh, throwing for a catcher is like throwing for a shortstop. It's an open chain activity. There's a lot of variables based on uh, where the pitch is, what the, what kind of leg uh, the pitcher has slow or fast and what kind of jump the runner has. And so that's going to dictate how you handle a particular, there's no, uh, always or never's here that there's, you know, there, there, there aren't real absolutes. So one thing that I do know that, uh, or I feel like I know is that uh, alignment and release are more important than velocity. I, I need to get the ball airborne faster. I, I think that you, in order to, to in and another thing caught stealing is probably the worst indicator of whether the guy's a good thrower or not because yeah. if a pitcher is one sixth of the plate and 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 doesn't hold guys on or uh the base runner has a, a like hey you're you're uh the vault steal like matt tallarico the guy that works for you guys with the yankees really good and he creates some problems and guys have good jumps or the pitch is in the dirt or the pitch is high or the hitters in the throwing lane or the, the middle infielder is not in a good position to tag, that's all going to affect your caught stealing stats. So I don't look at that. I look at the times where everything is in your, not necessarily in your favor, yeah. but not in, not in disfavor. Yeah. Like you have no, you know, I can't tell you how many reports I get. Well, they stole three bases, but we didn't have a chance on any one of them because they had for whatever reason. Yeah. I don't even count those as stolen bases against the catcher. But what I do look for is is 
how can I be the best version of myself? What are some of the things that I need to do? What are not necessarily absolutes because there's so many variables. Uh, you you never quite sometimes get to your absolutes and you got to throw with a low slot or you got to throw with, with a trunk tilt that's not conducive to throwing the ball with backspin and things like that. But one of the things that, that I do know is that uh, even though raw arms, having raw arm strength is important, it takes a lot more raw, arms, raw, raw arm strength to create uh, better pop times than it does release. I can do a better – if I can get faster release, it, it'll, it's more bang for the buck than just throwing the ball with more, more velocity. Mm-hmm. So um, catching the ball deep, uh, not gaining ground when I'm throwing, getting my right foot behind my left foot throw, I'm in throwing position, getting the ball airborne. So everything that we try and do is to get the ball airborne. Now, obviously, you can't just arc the ball down there, and that won't work. So you've, you've got to find that sweet spot between your ability to create some acceleration. And uh, I'm, I'm looking a lot – again, <laughs> you asked me what time it is. I'm telling you how to make the watch, but I'm jumping <laughs> here a little bit. But, but I'm looking a lot at uh, – uh, since we have the technology, I look a lot at – and again, um, spin axis, because when you throw the ball with a bad spin axis, you create uh, a kind of a parabola and the ball's traveling a, a longer distance and, and it's more more susceptible to being slowed down and dragged down by gravity. Uh, so spin rate, spin efficiency that the, you know, kind of like the spin efficiency, like those four seam fastballs with high high carry, that uh, high induced vertical break that, that mm-hmm. pitchers have. Uh, I'm, I'm looking at spin rate, and this is something that you know. Since we have the technology, we we haven't yet conquered the spin rate uh, formula yet, or the 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 how, other than using uh, some type of stickum, which we can't can't do. But uh, so trying to look at that and uh, creating, looking at a stretch reflex in the fingers relative to finger pressure. I, I've always thought we needed a uh, uh, a force plate baseball to measure, mm-hmm. to measure your, your smiling, but yeah. you know what I'm talking about I, yeah, I mean, in how much pressure, because you know, the looser the grip you have on the ball, the, the less spin you're going to have and the slower yeah. it's going to be. Uh, you have to have a certain amount of pressure and what's the mind, right amount of force. And then looking certainly at, uh, uh, at, uh, you know, how we can handle our spin rate and, Spin action, spin efficiency, and velocity, and and where the where the where the 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 tipping point is for that individual. And again, it comes down to the individual. Some guys, hey, they, I mean, Martin Maldonado. If I tried to increase his uh, his release, his uh, uh, transfer time, or decrease his transfer time, he probably wouldn't be very good. Very good. He catches the ball and then lets it rip and throws the ball eighty-eight miles an hour. Now, the best combination of the the two is JT Real Muto at this point with really good release times and really good acceleration. And so you just, uh, uh, there's not, I don't have a good answer. That's why I'm seeking, <laughs> I'm asking questions of the experts relative to, uh, I, I'm a real big believer that everything starts from the ground up and that ankle flexibility becomes important because it sets that hip hinge and puts you in your glutes and, mm-hmm. and, uh, uh, so uh, force plates are important, and we don't we haven't done a good job with position players relative to 
force plate seems like hitters and maybe some pitchers, but I think that's that's a the the, the new frontier for because it's a ground based activity, and I, I don't think we've paid enough attention to what's happening on the ground, at least from a quantifiable standpoint uh, in the in the baseball arena. And I think those are some things. But I'm just trying to evaluate everything: the transfer out of the glove and uh, uh, the the effect of a flip transfer versus going in and get it, and the amount of is this gap pitch independent with the rear arm and the lead arm? Does it happen simultaneously? Uh, does it depend on the pitch and and measuring all the variables? And uh, you know, when you get a low outside pitch and you have to have to tilt to the left, you know, and and now I've got energy going away from my target, which is a necessity because of the pitch. Or or sometimes I have to throw the ball with a really low slot where I don't get my hand above my uh, above uh, where the ball is above my hand, that it's kind of a flat where I throw a runner down there. And, and so <laughs> it's just, I'm just searching really. Yeah. I bet that's, I mean, you gotta, sometimes it's not about having the answers it's about asking the right questions to, right. to right. Sure they all, all the pieces fit together. You know, I, I do love the emphasis on, on just like athleticism. You mentioned earlier, it's not just these, this era of big blocky catchers anymore. Like you, you see a lot of guys under six feet tall who are catching in the big leagues. And there's one thing I found, you know, there's probably both performance and health benefits to it. it just seems like in general, the industry has done a better job in, in my realm, in the strength editioning field of doing more ground to standing or transitions. And ultimately, you know, catchers are probably ones that benefit the most. We do more Turkish get-ups, arm bars, rollover get-up and goes, just things that force people to sequence. Um, you know, certainly we know that everyone learned how to roll over and crawl and stand and walk and do all these things. There, there are probably certain patterns that are very primitive for us that are really, really important for us to, to ultimately master these movements where they have to go from ground to standing transitions. And, um, you know, the catchers are probably the ones that benefit the most. So we've, we've worked a lot of it into our sprint work, a lot of it into our, you know, our med ball stuff, just trying to give them, you know, various challenges that require them to go from ground to upright, you know, more than they would just, squatting or deadlifting or something like that yeah this isn't going to be a popular uh, opinion but i think that the one knee stance has helped catchers uh from the from from the wear and tear standpoint they're not dealing with dynamic balance all the time uh Mm -hmm. because they've got a three point yeah three points of contact they're not trying you know i think in in that sense that's why it was so quickly adopted into professional baseball when when we don't change for anybody or anything. And all of a sudden everybody's down on a knee. And yep. I think, I think a lot less wear and tear. I think uh, uh, the impact of uh, balls in the dirt is less. The, the foul tips I think are less. They're in a, they're in a much more relaxed position, which to me is a, a more efficient position. Now, I'm not saying it's right for every situation, but I think that it's probably helped catchers from the physical perspective standpoint especially those catchers with less flexible like the bigger guys like i think yeah. salvador perez has really benefited by yeah. the, the one knee stance he's you know hasn't affected his throwing and and uh i think it's i, I think it's allowed him to catch more games i just think that uh, uh we have to be open-minded to everything and there are no always or nevers and i think that you you know the the smart man learns more from the dumb man than the dumb man learns from the smart man. And I think that, that we have to find what works for each, again, individual differences, what works for that person based on what are the demands of the situation. You know, if, it, if it's for, for receiving is important, you know, be in the best position to receive it. 
If blocking is important, be in your best position to block. If throwing is important, be in your best position to throw. And ideally, if you have one position that can accommodate all three, that's great. But it doesn't necessarily have to be. You can have a, 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 a you know, kind of a, a, a lot of options. I, and I'll speak personally, like I've, I've caught a fair amount over the years more out of necessity than out of desire to do it. And I had a meniscus repair in January of 2021 and um, traditional stance is not my best friend. I can go one knee down and my knee feels perfectly fine. Just does not love deep knee flexion on that surgery side. So um, interestingly, it's allowed me to kind of get in and do a little bit more. So and I think probably for the folks who made on her soon as well, probably a good time to verify, you know, everything we know that guys still can block and throw just as well from the one knee down as they can from the conventional thing. So no, no doubt. And it's very individualized. And yep. I think there are the hardliners who just <laughs> aren't yep. open-minded. They just, yep. they just can't bring themselves to, to accept, accept yep. that. And, and I think those are the guys that really yep. have not been in the trenches yep. with various different athletes and find out what works yep. for that athlete. And, and yep. they're looking for, you know, the, the, the absolute that this is how you got to do it. And, you know, and I, that's just not the case. I, you know, uh, John Wooden had a great poem. He says there once was a 400 hitter named Krantz who had a most unusual stance, but with a coach's correction and Krantz's perfection, he couldn't hit the seat of his pants. <laughs> and that was a wooden poem, by the way. And so, you know, it's, it, there's so much bandwidth out there mm-hmm. for every skill that, uh, and the bottom line is uh, the end result that's it. And while we're, while we're celebrating the one knee dance, it's probably a one knee down stance. I should mention that this podcast is sponsored by Tanner Swanson. So, <laughs> well, that's yeah, good. Some love. You know what, to his credit, like yep. Agashioka, yep. he's not a one knee down guy. He's got the lowest two point profile in baseball yet. Trevino, he's a, he, he's a, you know, Bobby Wilson, Texas Ranger guy and, and Tanner guy. And, and he's a one knee down guy and, and that works for him. And Higgy's worked it in some too. So you never know. Um, So, you know, shifting gears a little bit, maybe back to the managerial side of things, you know, what's, what's coolest about your resume is you're not afraid of taking on anything. Like, I think that's pretty awesome. Like, you know, I've I've done a few different things. I don't want team USA, obviously the Yankees role now and, and what I've done in entrepreneurship in the private sector, but you've taken on coaching challenges in college, professional, international baseball. You've written books, you've done DVDs, you've spoken in front of 5,000 people. You've spoken in front of five teenage athletes. And I, you know, I think that always speaks to is you've made a lot of first impressions. You've turned programs around. You've, you've brought people together quickly underneath that, you know, team umbrella. I'm curious, like what, what lessons have, have all these experiences taught you um, that might benefit some of the young coaches? You know, cause we always see like, I always joke about like people who come into new scenarios, like Johnny brass balls, they want to come in and point out everything that's wrong and, you know, just not even take time to evaluate what's in place. And you know, I always try to take a pensive approach when I walk into new surroundings, you know, what lessons would you have from your own experiences for some of these young coaches who may be taking on an, a team or a new challenge, whether that's a, you know, seven-year-old soccer team or whether it's a, you know, major league manager, they're obviously very different, but there are probably principles that are the same across the board. Well, number one, <laughs> as many people as I've I've helped, I've screwed up just about as many. <laughs> what uh, you know, n- not knowing what you didn't know, yeah, and you know. and I think that one of the things for me, uh, knowing that, and, and as bad a player as I was, I, I know it's not a game of perfection, and I I only know what I know, and 
and I can't, uh, I'm not an x-ray machine or an MRI machine. I can't tell you this is absolutely right, but uh, I'm, I'm being, uh, transparency, I guess, is what I'm saying is really important. And, and understanding that, you know, I'm basically, you know, my job is to eliminate my job, that really I'm, I'm guardrails to keep you on the track to do the right things. And ultimately, uh, the best lessons are self-taught and you need to learn this, but I'm going to be here to learn along with you and to help you and and uh, we're gonna we're gonna figure this thing out together. But it, it, you know, understanding, I, I think early on, probably, you know, I had more ego, and you know, I got satisfaction. You know, I've, I, you know, I, I figured I knew what I was doing, and <laughs> and uh, and the the more you know, the less you know, <laughs> and and the older you get, you find out how little you know. And and I think that that honesty and uh, and and also understanding that the that the, the lead singer is always the player and you have to put the player first and, yep. and that, Hey, I'm here, you know, I don't have all the answers and I certainly don't have all the answers for you. You should have the, you're the one that needs to have the answers for yourself. You know, this is a, a self-taught industry for the most part, and you need to take responsibility for that, but I'm going to be here to support you, help you and do what I can. And, and so in, in that sense, going in there without being, trying not to be the smartest guy in the room and, and there, there are no always or nevers. You got to do this or you can't do that. And hey, there's a lot of different ways to skin that cat. And so I'm here to help you find the best way to, to do it for yourself. I don't want codependent players who need me standing beside them to, to help them uh, do what they need to do. They need to they need to figure it out themselves. I love that concept of humility. Like it goes a long way, and you, you've been coaching since 1966. It, well, I'll tell you when, you when you when you've screwed up as much as I've screwed up, <laughs> whether they say you're either humble or about to be humble. <laughs> yes. so, you know, I've I've had I've had plenty of screw ups, believe me, and I and and I've learned over time. I think early on when I started coaching, there was a guy named Paul Deese at Chapman College, and and I was in my early 20s, and I went out to see practices and that was a time where the division three schools played the division one schools and he would beat sc and all. he was really good and he says weinstein he says you think you think you can coach i said yeah i think this is all right i think i'm all right he says well let me tell you something he says uh, winners recruit losers coach so <laughs> all of a sudden that, that put me in my place but it helped me because yeah. i understand getting the right guys on the bus the quality of, of inmates was really important and I think that, you know, the good programs are across college and professional baseball understand that, you know, good outcomes are a function of scouting and player development working together. Like, you know, player development doesn't work unless you you scout players that you can actually develop. It's a lot easier to develop good players than bad players. That's that's the undoubtable truth. Um, all right. So we always do a lightning round on the tail end of these podcasts. And I'm actually really excited because um, I'm, I'm a bookworm and I know you're a voracious reader. So what's one book that every player should read? Well, I would say the, I have two, and they're written by Ken Revisa. Ken's books, Heads Up Baseball 1. Point, or Heads Up Baseball and then Heads Up Baseball 2.0. He and Tom Hansen, those books are, for me, uh, the, the mental game. <laughs> I used to always – I've had a lot of time with Ken before we lost him so tragically, but I used to tease him. I said, Ken, this game is 95% physical, 5% mental. He says, yeah, this is Weinstein. He says, but the 5% mental controls the 95% physical. And I truly do believe that. And from a confidence and belief standpoint, and I think those two books are, are really, really important. 
I love it. What about a uh, book that, or, or more books that coaches should read? Uh, I, the, the one that I've, and I've read it, this has been a, a fair amount of time since I read it, but I've reread it since think again by Adam Grant. Yeah. Uh, you know, where we really, ex- really examine our paradigms and uh, continue. And I'm continually doing this, whatever I'm doing, I'm trying to, trying to poke holes and I'm trying to prove myself wrong and examine what you're doing. Cause sometimes we get stuck in our paradigms and they're not good and we, we can't see the forest through the trees and we have to continually evaluate and examine what we're doing. And is there a better way to do it? Or even with a particular drill or concept, yeah. you know, always examining it to see if it's still good or if you can make it better. Adam Grant's got great stuff. Give and take is another excellent one that he, that he wrote that I think has some, some coaching. Yeah, I have not read that. I'll have to pick That's that a great up. One. Um, so if you go back in time and give uh old Jerry 20 years ago, some, uh, some advice, what would it be? Breathe. <laughs> I, was, I was always, you know, and not outwardly, but in, I mean, outwardly I was pretty good. You know, yep. he's pretty cool, but inside, you know, I, I remember, I remember the work, the first state championship we, we won at, at uh, Sacramento city college. And uh, I'm, I'm, we're at the end of the game and we're going to win this thing. And, and, and I didn't, all I was thinking about, oh man, we're going to be horseshit next year. Mm-hmm. We, you know, recruiting. And, and yeah. I didn't take the time to really appreciate the moment. I did that, uh, unfortunately, uh, with, with my, my daughter, even though now I'm making up for it. <laughs> I'm trying hard to make up for it. But I think, uh, you know, being in the moment and enjoying the moment and not getting ahead of yourself. And, uh, and uh, uh, I think that, that that's important. I love that. Um, what about your favorite coaching memory when you look back on them? No, I've had, I've had a lot of good ones. I hate to just limit it to one, but uh, my, my 24 years at Sac City were, were really good because we built something that is sustained. They're still good. Yeah. Uh, managing in the minor leagues. I love being a minor league manager. I was a, I was a manager. I had managed in Modesto for six yeah. years and I was in instructional league and, and Dan O'Dowd and Bill Guybet said, hey, we want to take you and Andrea out for dinner. Uh, we want to talk to you about uh, coaching in the big leagues next year. And so we go out to dinner, and and uh, they said, uh, well, you know, we get some young catching, blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, geez, I really like managing in the minor leagues. Jerry, we're talking about coaching in the big leagues. <laughs> well, I said, well, you're my boss. You just tell me what you want me to do, but I, I – that's, That's never been on my bucket list. And, and I really enjoy young players, which I still do. If I had a choice, you know, rookie league or low A or A, I mean, that's, I really like that. Um, the Olympics were great. Got a chance to be involved in three Olympics. Uh, the WC was a great experience with team Israel. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, and then certainly being in the big leagues with the Rockies was, was really good, but I've, I've had, I, you know, I, I really enjoy, I, well, I choose to enjoy now everything. That wherever my feet are, I'm going to enjoy it, whatever yeah. I'm doing. I, I was just going to say, it seems like you have a good way of uh, about being where your feet are. I, I respect that a lot. It's probably what's spoken to your, you know, how, how long you've, you've been a very productive member of this this baseball world. It's that you, you kind of always appreciate where you are and, and, and try to over-deliver for your athletes wherever you wind up. Um, we have a lot of kids and parents who, who listen to this podcast together. It's kind of like the, the ride home from practice or games. Um, if you give one bit of advice to the kids, you know, and, and to the parents, you know, what, what would it be? 
Now, I had to think about this one. I, I wrote yeah. some things down. I, I, I think uh, broaden your interests. Don't don't put all your eggs in one basket. Uh, yeah, there's an old saying: all your eggs in one basket, and you can't blow your nose. But uh, <laughs> uh, diversify uh, again. Be where your feet are. You know, I think a lot of these guys are playing on travel teams, and they're just thinking yeah. about their scholarships instead of enjoying what they're doing at the, at the time and getting the most out of it. The relationships with the coaches and the players, that's important. Uh, accept responsibility for your actions. I think all too often, I think, unfortunately, the national pastime today in, in, a, in a certain respect, and, I, and this is kind of negative, but it's transfer of blame. You know, it's not my fault and I had a bad teacher or a bad coach or blah, blah, this, you know, accepting responsibility for your actions. And then, uh, again, we talked about savor the moment. I think that's really important. And then uh, and, and have good, bad days. <laughs> Every day is not going to be great. You're going to be, you know, and that's one thing that Ravisa said. He says, he says, do you suck so bad that you have to feel good to play good? <laughs> I thought that was so that's great. You know, he always talked about getting 100% of whatever he had on a particular day. Now, before we wrap up, I want to celebrate your social media um, because you're prolific. It's it's at J1, J-W-O-N, catching on both Twitter and Instagram. Um, like I said, really, like it's like a must follow, particularly for catchers, just because you do such a great job of breaking down, you know, content as it becomes available in, in Major League Baseball's games. I think it's it's so, so important to to learn from basically like you know, game scenarios. And I, I really respect what you do. So many people are well, just, I'm, I'm kind of, <laughs> I think I'm kind of a, I'm, you know, obviously you can tell now I'm a real type A personality, but I'm kind of addicted to that. And, and Alan like Jager got me started in that yeah. when I wrote my book, <laughs> he says, he says, uh, uh, do you have a website? I said, no. He says, do you, do you post on Twitter? I said, I, don't, I have no idea what the hell you're talking about. Yeah. He said, oh, you're a dinosaur. And so, he got me started, and 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 then I got a lot of response, positive responses. And I felt like, hey, this is not only do I like yeah. doing it, but I feel like it's from an industry standpoint, I can help some people yeah. and uh, at least point them in the right direction. So I, you know, I post on catching, but I post on whatever I try yeah, and do, something every day, and uh, yeah. that's how I start my day. I love it. And then website is weinsteinbaseball.com. Really good stuff, uh, both in terms of articles. It links to your social media as well. You've got books, DVDs, um, kind of keeps track of where you're going to be from a seminar standpoint. Um, Jerry, you've been a, a wonderful friend for many, many years. I always enjoy. And you too. I, I, I'm on top of you all the time, yeah. reading your stuff and utilizing it and, and um, much appreciated, EC. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate all the mentorship over the years and what you brought to the field. And um, this was excellent content. So we appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. I, I enjoyed it greatly. Mm-hmm.